You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. While entrepreneurs are often lauded with creating new businesses and ideas, it is more often the case that change agents working within organizations or intrapreneurs are responsible for innovation and seeing those new ideas through to completion. Welcome to the Innovation Economy Entrepreneurs Series. I am your co-host, Adam Chen, an independent change management consultant and current president of AmenityLink, a property technology company. In this series, you will hear stories and insights from leaders within organizations that have had the courage to create new ways to move business forward. To listen to the latest episodes or sign up for the Innovation Economy newsletter, go to innovationeconomy.show or click on your favorite podcast app to make sure you hear the latest episodes. The episode that you're about to listen to was previously released as an episode of The Agile Brand. It is right in line with the ideas and themes that we discuss on the Entrepreneur series of The Innovation Economy, and I hope you enjoy it. Now, let's get on to the show. Joining me today on the show, we have Shane Powell. Shane, why don't you uh, introduce yourself for our listeners? Hey, Adam. My name is Shane Powell, and I'm an organizational anthropologist by education. So what that generally means is that my orientation towards work is to help organizations understand how their culture both enables and disables them from being able to pursue their business objectives. So with that, you know, I've worked kind of all over the place um, from being internal to consulting to being internal for consulting firms and just have had a variety of wonderful experiences working with Fortune 100 companies to mid-sized companies and even nonprofits in some cases. So lots of wonderful experience that I'm excited to share with you today. Thanks, Shane. Yeah, and I've had the pleasure, obviously, of working with uh, with you and alongside you at the Amenity Collective, um, undergoing a, a massive digital transformational effort where we've pretty much gutted and replaced every single operational system, touching every single department in the company. It's been a lot of exciting work. I'm thankful that uh, you know you're you're willing to uh, to join us today. Yep. So why don't we get started? You know, the first thing I wanted to just ask you, and maybe you could could opine. You know, what is your philosophy of work? What is work to you? Yeah. So on one hand, like I can make this a big academic discussion on what is the anthropology of work. But really, I think I make this more of a personal question and response in that my philosophy, I would say, is how can I contribute the most value? And I look at that in terms of what do I do well? What is helpful? What do others find valuable? And as much as possible, I try to lean into those things, which has taken me in a variety of different ways, working on a bunch of different projects that completely unrelated in different fields and industries. It's provided a lot of exciting opportunities for me. And as much as possible, I think what's important about that is 
figuring out what you're not good at and getting away from that stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. I think not only just what you're not good at, but what are maybe those tasks that, you know, are no longer serving you, I guess, in your current role. Mm-hmm. There's this book I read once by Silicon Valley founders and whatnot, but it's it's this kind of concept about addition by subtraction, right? You can't continue to grow if you don't kind of put aside some of those things that are no longer serving you. You have to free up the time. We only have, like t- time is our one limited resource. So yeah. it's about you know, focusing in on where you can provide the values you mentioned. So that, that makes a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. So within work, right. And your experience of work, right. There's a lot of different personas there. Obviously in the show, we're, we're talking about entrepreneurs. So mm-hmm. maybe in your own words, tell me what does entrepreneurship mean to you? Yeah. So interestingly to me, when you brought up this discussion of entrepreneurs, it's kind of a funny memory for me because maybe about a decade ago, I was speaking with someone who was a career coach. And they said to me that something that I should put on my resume is that I'm an entrepreneur. And that was like my first exposure to the word. Had no idea what it meant. But after talking it out with them, I'm like, okay, like that that does make sense. Like, in a way, I am someone working within an organization, whether that's like, because I'm actually an employee of that organization or a consultant to that organization and working with their localized team to figure out how to innovate. So that's that pretty much is my understanding of the word. Someone who's trying to critically analyze, you know, systems, processes, et cetera, and so on, and work on like change management initiatives, et cetera, to harvest that innovation and put it into effect for the organization. You know, I had, I guess, a similar experience where, you know, my, my first time hearing the term, you know, it wasn't something that I necessarily self-identified myself with, you know, but, but as I sat with the word for a little bit while longer, I got a lot more comfortable with it. Fo- follow-up question, you know, you've worked in a lot of different organizations, right, in a lot of different industries. And really what we're talking about here is, is facilitating change. Who do you see as in, in a lot of your experience driving a lot of that change? Is it, you know, the entrepreneur persona or is it other personas in these organizations? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. As you know, and as I think a lot of people know, change management is extremely difficult to execute well. Like there's some stat out there, like 70 something percent of change initiatives fail. So like who's handling the change management? That, that varies hugely from organization to organization, but it's, it's not necessarily people in the C-suite. It might be people somewhere in or tangential to like HR departments or IT departments, accounting. I mean, like name all of them other than necessarily the C-suite. Obviously the C-suite plays a big role as far as being a stakeholder that needs to be brought on board with whatever the initiative is and provided with, you know, sort of the financials on how this change is going to bring about value for the rest of the organization. But the people who are doing the change are typically somewhere in the middle to the front lines. Interesting. Now, you've worked alongside, I suppose, a lot of those frontline workers that that you're referencing. Talk to me a little bit about the dynamics that you experience as a consultant coming in from the outside within some of these organizations. Maybe there's uh, some stories you can tell about what worked and, and, and maybe what hasn't worked so well. And what, what about that relationship? Yeah, so lot, lots, lots of thoughts, lots of comments. 
plenty of funny stories that I can think of, I guess. But, you know, really, I guess, like when it comes down to thinking about like what change management, change management is and what makes it effective, I would say transparency is probably like the number one element that any organization can have from, you know, like a three person company to a 5,000 person company, having transparency, mutual understanding over what change needs to be made, why we're making it, who's responsible, what accountabilities everyone has. And the singular most important thing for me that I try to stress as a consultant and also internally is like, how are we defining success? And beyond that, another element is accounting for when things fall off of the tracks. How do we get things back on track? A lot of people think about change more in terms of project management, where it's sort of like you, you have some sort of thing that you need to implement. They move through the cycles, they implement it, but they don't think about the life cycle. They don't think mm-hmm. about like, does this project, this thing that we put into play need any sort of maintenance? Is there yes. potential for it to go awry? And how are we sort of addressing those factors? I think it's hugely, hugely important to think about how you define success and how you're going to sustain any sort of initiative that you work on. And that to me is probably kind of the crux of where most people don't successfully implement change. I'd also take a step back to say that fundamentally change management involves some sort of change that involves people. There's an element of having to identify what behavioral change is occurring for people and how do you go about making sure that people who are part of the change journey know what they need to know in order to help implement the change. If you're not really addressing those factors fully, uh, you're also setting yourself up for a change failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like kind of what you're saying. And there, there's a lot there that I'd like to unpack, um, mm-hmm. you know, so starting with, you know, I, I heard transparency obviously being being kind of key there, you know, maybe underpinning some of this other stuff about understanding the life cycle that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you could give our listeners some tactics or some other examples about one what do we mean when we say transparency, right? I could go on the, on the the deep end here and say like Ray Dalio, right, of Bridgewater Associates, right, has this concept of radical transparency. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that that's probably a little out of reach, I would say, for the majority of organizations. Yeah. So so where where is that sweet spot in your view, you know, that will provide people the understanding of that full life cycle you're talking about? Mm-hmm. But, you know, where does, I guess, the transparency stop? So, you know, I mean, like, It's a really good question. You need to consider your audience. If we're kind of to get into the concept of empathy, you need to put yourself in the shoes of the person who's receiving the message from you about what this change initiative is going to be. So when considering those that need to be involved in the change initiative, you really need to put yourself in their shoes as far as what are they going to need and want to know in order to be on board with the vision that we have for the organization, how this change is going to help the organization and help them. So of course, by kind of using that framework, you can come up with what is the need to know for this uh, individual or this band of individuals. Obviously there's like certain stuff that's just inappropriate for certain people throughout the organization to know. 
and you don't really need to go into that much detail. But the, the thing that most people, I would say, hate about change is when they don't know why it's happening. <laughs> they feel like change is happening to them. They don't feel like they're being brought into the process and they don't feel like they have any ownership. Yes. You know, I, I have seen 101 ways for people to botch change initiatives simply by not communicating that sort of essential information down to frontline employees, executives um, or or mid-level managers do some sort of tabulations, you know, in the back and figure out that it's going to save money to do this and that, or it's going to generate value for the organization in this, these various different ways. And they just kind of go out and waterfall down the communication on this is the change we're going to be making. People feel slighted. They feel like they're yeah. not being told anything. They're being treated like cogs in the machine. And in that way, people can actually totally grind your change to a halt by just not participating. Because yeah. again, like if we take it a step back to who is going to do what, when, where, why, and how, if you haven't clearly defined that in your uh, change management plan, you're going to miss that opportunity for people to feel like they're being heard and being part of involved as part of the process. So, yeah, you know, unfortunately, I've seen way too many projects ground to a halt because someone somewhere knew that it was a good business decision, but didn't bring people along on the journey. Yeah. That resonates a lot, the sense of ownership, you know, and I've had the fortune of uh, being able to lead, you know, different teams, you know, throughout my career. And it's something I'm always kind of, kind of keen on, you know, is, is that sense of ownership. People, people want to be involved in solutioning. I, yeah. I think most people by nature are problem solvers in one way or another, um, right? No one wants to be an automaton that just follows orders, right? And so, so, you know, in what ways that I guess as leaders or, you know, you as a consultant helping in organizations can kind of foster that environment, right? I guess, you know, where people feel comfortable, you know, that leadership feels comfortable, you know, maybe relinquishing some of the control. And I think that's really hard because now you're starting to get into human behavior. You hit on something else in your answer about, about empathy, you know, and as a, a career marketer and a communicator, I think that is very top of mind for me. And I often forget how difficult it probably is for a lot of people to put themselves in another person's shoes. You know, we live in an environment where we're overstimulated, you know, things are getting thrown at us at work, at home, you know, demands are increasing, right? We're always connected, right? We're constantly interrupted. It's hard to just get out of what is happening to me, right? To find that sense of peace, much less take that extra leap and put yourself in somebody else's shoes. So may maybe you could talk to me a little bit more about your experiences about where you've run into leaders that are, you know, maybe very practiced at communicating down and going that extra mile, you know, and in what ways for those folks that you encounter that maybe aren't intuitively doing this, how do you help nudge them along that journey? I think there's two big factors there. One is just how does the organization address training and development of management? And then another factor that's huge there is... Yeah, it's, it's organizational culture. Say you have this very waterfall type approach where you've got a director somewhere who tells a, a manager the outcome that they need and then the manager goes to frontline staff and just says, this is what I need everybody to do. And we don't really take time to consider how they're going to get there. 
that's where a lot of problems can come into play because if you kind of give someone a carrot, like they might achieve that carrot, but it's like, is that thing that they achieved really wholly beneficial for the company? And this is where, like, I would say actually in a lot of my consulting work, it's looking at the KPIs that people have and asking them if they're really helping them to fully achieve all of the outcomes that the business is hoping to get. Unfortunately, I think that a lot of organizations just sort of duplicate KPIs from other organizations and don't really critically consider what are the ones that we as an organization should be chasing that really fully like bring to the fore all of the objectives that we want to hit. The easy ones are always things that you can quantify financially, and they'll certainly always be part of kind of the core framework that organizations use to determine whether or not they're successful. But I think there's other huge things to consider. To your point that you may or may not have been making, but I'm going to say that you are, is how are you developing your people? So that that is one that honestly falls to the wayside a lot of the time. And that sort of training and development of managers to be empathetic and how it can be strategic to be empathetic rather than just kind of hand down marching orders because what does it ultimately do? It gets you in the shoes of the person doing the work and you can ultimately figure out ways to innovate that maybe you couldn't by not having that empathetic approach. Yeah, I think it's something we hear all the time, right? I mean, you, you go to high school, you go to college, you learn all of these skills, but no one teaches you how to manage people. And, and you know, I think uh, it, it's funny. I, I always like to say this, but like, People like to coin that stuff soft skills, but I guess as you rise the ranks in organizations, I'd argue that they're not soft at all. They're the most critical skills, you know, that lead to your success or failure. No, I, I completely agree, right? Like you can, you cannot have any hard skills and be exceptionally good with the soft skills. And th I mean, that's the, the core fundamental thing to being able to being a, a good leader. It's being able to, lead people, being able to manage people. You know, the difference between like a leader and a manager. Leader is much more concerned with like an individual's growth and being able to empower individuals to do their work well and find new and better ways of doing work and enjoy their experience versus a manager is just kind of an auditor in chief coming around, making sure that people have hit their quotas without having any understanding of whether or not those, by hitting those quotas year over year, you're doing anything to really grow the the business or the individual. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. And and I, I loved how you're talking a little bit about defining the KPIs. And I think the theme that I'm hearing you, you talk a lot about is so much of success, I guess, when it comes to an entrepreneur's success or just a change initiative success really comes down to planning in, in a lot of ways, you know, as, as, you know, some of these elements, whether it's defining the right set of KPIs or making sure that there's the right people or environment or training, all that stuff's prerequisite material before you even get to the actual change initiative itself. Right. Yeah. You know, any, any thoughts, I guess, generally around maybe some other pitfalls that companies fall into that maybe would limit their success with, with some change initiatives or, or innovation in general. Change management is really about understanding where people are at and what sort of training, education they will need in order to change their behavior. And 
without accounting for people, without accounting for how people will respond. I mean, say it's not even internal. Say you're thinking about your customers. If you're not thinking through how are my people going to respond to the announcement of this change? How are my people going to respond to the training of this change? Is this training actually giving them what they need in order to successfully help us get through the change? You know, like a lot of times people will identify the need, right? It's like, I have this individual and I need them to understand how to use, you know, this CRM platform in order to help our business grow. So you might put together a training and be like, aha, I did it. We created training. But have you really evaluated whether or not that training was effective? If anything, I could say what I'm really good at doing is problematizing things or, or maybe a, a more um, informal way of saying that is I like to kick the tires on everything. I like to make sure that everything is ironclad and bulletproof because this sort of moonshot approach to change management of like, this is the change we need and uh, let's just see if we can get there. To me, you know, the, that, that old adage of if you fail the plan, you plan to fail. Or I think that that kind of is like the key theme here with everything is like, have you really truly considered all that it is going to take in order to be successful? <laughs> so I think that people really undersell that because they just think if we get this, things will be great. And it, it's a little too simplistic. But I think that that's kind of the singular most crucial thing when it comes to change management is treating like project management, not really accounting for like the people element and the reactions and your response. I want to make sure you know about the other podcast from the Agile brand, the award-winning show about marketing strategy, technology, and the customer experience and building the brand of the future. It's called the Agile brand with Greg Kilstrom. And in it, we talk with leaders at some of the world's top brands, the MarTech platforms that are leading the way and other thought leaders in marketing, CX, and digital transformation. Now in its fifth year with over 400 episodes and 1 million downloads, make sure you check it out with new episodes Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. To listen to the Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom podcast, you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to theagilebrand.show. That's theagilebrand.show. Now let's get back to the show. You know, here at the Agile Brand, we, we like to always talk about like people, process, and platforms. And, um, you know, if we kind of take that in reverse order, you know, we've got the platform, which is your technology. You know, I mean, that, that that's pretty easy. I mean, I'm not saying it's not technically easy to implement those things, right? But there's whole industries right out there for, with every piece of, you know, enterprise software that you could potentially put in a nice new platform and, and have expertise, I guess, at, available to you at the right price, right? And then we kind of back up a little bit process. Process, obviously, you know, difficult, right, to standardize. I think in a lot of organizations, we've experienced that, you know, trying to find some efficiencies of scale at the amenity collective, um, but also well within reach, right, and capabilities. You know, you get the right people in there, it's, you, you can define a process. Both of those things are predictable, I would say, not easy. What is unpredictable is people, which is also the very first part of people process and platforms. So I would argue, and my viewpoint is, it's kind of fruitless, to venture into any replatforming effort or any process change effort 
if you don't have the right people in place first. So to, to kind of build upon that, I'm curious, you know, we've talked about a few what I'll call attributes of a potential entrepreneur or a change agent or whatever you might want, whatever moniker you want to put to it, right? We talked about empathy. We talked about transparency. Talk to me a little bit about what are some of those intrinsic traits that successful change agents embody and maybe some of those traits that lead them to either some misguidance or some oversight in some very key areas. Yeah. So I would say that conscientiousness is probably one of the biggest things coming back to soft skills because you need people who are really empathetic, really want to do right by the organization and, you know, people above them, same band as them and below them where, where change initiatives fail again, coming back to that is not really bringing everybody on, on board with the appropriate level of information they need to be able to be part of the process. So just really, truly having like the, the best interest of the company and of the people that work for the company at heart. Where I see certain people fail, and I've seen this, this is, uh, again, tying back to like big pitfall, uh, pitfalls. I would say that companies that aren't very mature with their change management practices, they kind of take these moonshots. They, um, you know, maybe like a, a family business that's grown tremendously could even be like a publicly traded company at this point. However, it's still kind of run, you know, like a, like a mom and pop family shop. They tend to go out and get the really shiny object. They go and find people who have had, have like stacks and stacks of bullet points on their resume of major changes that they've been a part of. And they focus more on that rather than the individual and I would say that organizations also fail sometimes uh, when sitting down with those people that they're bringing into the organization to hopefully lead and facilitate change to really, truly brief those people on like what it's going to take or how bad it really is. So you'll see a lot of these uh, shiny people come in very brash, you know, sort of bull in a china shop there because you know, they're, they're really driven by the accomplishments on their resume and not so much as concerned with the organization on a whole and being a good leader and steward for the organization and, and for those, especially on like the front line. So generally one, two things happen and sometimes both at the same time, that new person who's been brought in to make major changes, either kind of burns out and upsets a bunch of people. And then you just have a mass exodus of people leaving because they sort of understand it as like, oh, that's how things are around here. We're bringing in people and they're just changing things. And, you know, no one's communicating to me why we're making these changes. So people kind of just get fed up and, and feel like the organization isn't hearing them and just leave. Or another thing that you have related to that is that new shiny person with all of those bullet points on the resume, they come in and they get frustrated because you don't have like a very agile, you know, change-minded organization. So they're coming in expecting that you've got 
you know, like a change management department and that everybody understands, you know, how to scope out projects and communicate them and, uh, and celebrate wins along the way, et cetera, what have you. And when they find out that that's not the reality, they kind of get burnt out and fed up, chew up a lot of company dollars and eventually leave. Um, maybe scorning a bunch of people in the process. Uh, so I think that it's so critical for organizations who want to radically change to really understand why it is that they want to change. And if they do, really be okay and own with what it's going to take to do that. Because I think that a lot of those situations maybe come about because you've got an organization that has really become sedentary and knows it needs to change. So they go and find a change person Good. and they really don't appreciate all that it's going to take, which creates this bad situation for both the person they've brought in from the outside and for the people on the inside. Good. So those are just like a lot of considerations I would have when, if you're an organization seeking people to come in and help with change. And, and honestly, one of the biggest pitfalls I think you can have really, truly you as an organization, you really need to understand yourself and your capabilities and, and where you're lacking before. Yeah. I mean, like, come on, it, it's, it's like dating, right? Like know yourself before you go out and try to like find somebody else to solve your problem. So <laughs> I would think, yeah, I think that like there's a lot of pitfalls to be had at that juncture and coming back to the concept of transparency, the more both sides can really understand where they're at and what they need to do, the happier and more harmonious things are going to be. Yeah. You know, I can't help but to think, you know, and I see it all the time, right? There's a strategic shift in a business, right? Or they want to go after a new market, some expansion or growth opportunity presents itself. And the gut reaction is to go hire somebody bring in somebody that you mentioned, like that shiny object from the outside, right? Is that the most effective way? And is that the recipe for success to make sure that these initiatives work out? Or is there another path? I, I definitely wouldn't recommend that because again, like when that situation happens on the whole, it's because the organization is really missing competencies around whatever that mm -hmm. might be. Because it Remember, we're not just talking about like setting up a change management department. We're, we're talking about the entire organization, any department, and a need for sort of like a, a change type person within that department or across the whole organization. So it could be either. And, you know, I, I think that you might be teeing up like an entrepreneur, um, which uh, I think, yeah, I mean, that's really it. The, I, I think that probably the most successful way to go about change when you realize you need to change is to find people internally who are excited about, you know, working on stuff like that and really give them the tools to become owners of change. Because, you know, like if they're invested in the company, they know the company, they know who to talk to to get stuff done. It's this kind of fun, fundamental emphasis on trust internally Good. that you have to have in doing any sort of organizational change that, you know, you have my interests at heart, that that person feels as though, you know, you're offering them empathy, putting yourselves in that their shoes, 
You're not trying to hand them impossible tasks to go execute. I think that wholly like being able to nurture the relationships that you have internal to an organization, put people in seats of power who have the ability to grow and lead. Like, you know, I, I think like history has proven that's really the best way for most organizations to go about change. For sure. For sure. Not always possible, as you mentioned, you know, you might not have those capabilities right internally. So, you know, you're forced. That's, I mean, why if there's a consultant industry, it's, it's, you know, on, in a lot of ways too, to help bridge that gap. But you're right. I think history has proven that. You know, I just um, recently reread the book, Good to Great, you know, classic, you know, it's gosh, what, 20 years old now at least. But the, but the tenants ring true, right? And um, for anyone that hasn't listened to it or read it, right, definitely go pick it up. Great business literature. It is, you know, in summary, you've got 11 companies that significantly outpaced the market, right? Completely reinvented what might otherwise be considered a boring industry. And they did a very data-driven comparison of those successful 11 companies against, you know, a peer set. And that's one of the conclusions they drew, you know, I, I think is a lot of these leaders, what they might call level five leaders or whatnot, embody a lot of these traits that, that we're kind of talking about, but that they originated from inside. They weren't the higher that had a accompanying press release, right? It was, it was a lot more humble, you know, and I, I think, you know, I, I think that's certainly something that I've witnessed, you know, in, in my own experiences as well, you know, on those successful change initiatives. To your point, it is trust. It's all about people. It's all about relationships. And change can't happen in a silo. It can't happen singularly. You're talking about the whole organization. So it does take an army and it's who can rally, you know, those troops the best. Let's talk a little bit more about, you know, staffing for change. We've talked a lot about different roles, maybe some attributes, but, you know, what does it take, you know, what's a team makeup look like for a successful change initiative in your experience? Oh, man, I would say that varies so much depending on the scale of change. And uh, I've been a part of so many different configurations for that. But I think like what really truly matters if we're, I'm going to try to simplify like the essence is you have to have someone who's got symbolic authority, like at the very top, like the person who's communicating the why we're doing what we're doing. Yes. And then from there on out, you have to have, you know, someone who's like a layer down, who is a trusted individual, as you were saying, will kind of have, who has like authority in terms of like, this is what we need to do. That person is kind of going to be, be the point person to anyone else kind of mid-level who is making sure that change rolls down and is done successfully. And you got to have like a feedback loop. If we're to, you know, go to like Toyota production system with like the and on court kind of analogy. So, you know, as that goes with Toyota production system, the story there um, with how it works is anyone at any point in time working on the production line can pull a cord and fully stop production because they've noticed some sort of irregularity quality issue. So you have to have that trust that you on the front line can say, hey, something's going wrong here with this change and that you're going to get the respect and attention of those above you to come in and have that intervention and like make sure that things are done well. As I've said a couple of times now, 
anytime you have this sort of waterfall approach, this more management approach where it's, here's the task, go do it. And then you kind of leave the person porting to you on their own to either get it done or not. It can totally blow up. And then like you're dealing with fallout there. Like you need to have these feedback loops of people being able to come to you, having that trust that they can bring issues to your attention and then they'll get worked on collaboratively, take blame and things out of it and just be focused on like, what is the goal? What is the why we're doing this? We're all in this together. How do we make this thing a success rather than individual successes or failures? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Well, I want to I want to kind of end uh, with one final question. You know, I think you have facilitated change yourself, right? But you've worked in a lot of organizations where you're working alongside um, what we might call an entrepreneur, right? So, what are your observations? Any you know final nuggets of wisdom that you can leave our listeners from your unique seat? You know, kind of within an organization, but kind of sitting on the on the outsides of that. Give, give me your, your, your kind of final thoughts, I guess, on, on entrepreneurship from your lens. So I would say that, you know, I kind of describe myself first and foremost as a researcher and then was sort of forced into being like a designer and project manager and change manager because one of the first organizational like research projects that I worked on was... Um, with a product management department and they were trying to understand how it was that they made decisions as an organizations on which products to bring into the company and then sort of what the life cycle of that, those products were. Like how was the new product offering communicated to salespeople and to warehousing and distribution and then like rolling into operations, like how are those products handled, et cetera. And like, what is the life cycle and how do you decide when a product is um, no longer something that the company wants to offer and sell? So I did a, a really interesting project with them, which is, you know, being an anthropologist, ethnography is kind of the bread and butter um, of what I do, a methodology, uh, crystallized by Bronislaw uh, Malinowski, one of the OG anthropologists. And unfortunately, ethnography, like many things, has kind of taken a very watered-down approach. Like, historically, in its context, it was trying to understand the essence of a culture, right? So you as an anthropologist would spend at least in a, year, a year and a half living with a culture and trying to document, like, all of the ritual that goes on and both both the um intrinsic and like extrinsic rules of society basically like the way things are done around here and given some sort of decision you could predictably say someone will do this versus that right because given all of the values and rules of your society you can understand how people will make decisions so given that sort of context and framework, ethnography nowadays is much more kind of a buzzword for observing what's actually happening. So rather than a year and a half, it's kind of a go out in the field and just see what's going on. It's obviously where we get a lot of innovation. I mean, think of the uh, TV program Undercover Boss, right? Essentially, 
the the CEO is doing ethnography. He's going into the field, or she, or they, going into the field and observing what work is actually taking place, seeing the friction points, and then you know realizing like, well, this is an unnecessary friction point for this worker, and if we just did it this way, it would provide an easier workflow for the individual. And it would also just be better for the company. It's smarter business. So, I mean, I really, truly encourage people to take on that mindset of, you know, how can I go see what's going on from like a very positive, curious approach rather than kind of an auditor inspector? Because from that, you yield insights, which is also another word, um, seemingly duct tape to the word ethnography. So in that role that I had, you know, it was perceived that there was this, in the product management role, this very formal process of all of the people who are product managers sort of democratically sitting down with product vendors and, you know, doing big financial analysis on this product will make us this much money and we have this much capacity and, and all that stuff through like a three month research project, I found out that the process was actually much less formal. Essentially, there was one individual who held the most power and authority of all of the product managers who had been there a, a long time. And informally, that person would kind of give the nudge to the product rep, this is the product we're gonna go with. So what was thought to be this very communal decision was actually being made by like one person. So I mapped out, you know, the entire process of like how this worked and in working with the CEO on taking that information and trying to make it into something actionable. I mean, number one, it was a shock to the CEO that that's how it happens, which kind of back to a point that you were making like much earlier, people influence trust and all of that. Like these are, these are elements of the softness of organizations that people don't really pay attention to. People pay attention to like the hard transactions, the numbers, like whatever, but they don't really fully understand the nuance of the social dynamics of organizations and how decisions are made. So, the thing is, you know, like the whole point of that story is not to say that I outed this one product manager, because again, I don't come into this with any malicious intent. I'm meeting organizations where they are. I'm trying to help them understand what are the social rituals that occur that people don't necessarily know happen and either use that to define a new process or just bring more transparency to everyone else on that is the way that decisions actually get made. So what came out of that was, well, you've done all this great research. You've shown us how it is that we make decisions within this organization. And they're much more informal and social than we thought. Now we need someone to help lead us through change. So that I think is where sort of the birth of my entrepreneurial skill set started because I then was internal to the organization and trying to figure out how to help them get from where they were to where they wanted to be. 
And I think the biggest takeaway overall there is if you want to be an entrepreneur, you really just kind of have to have a passion for helping organization around you strive to grow to whatever it wants to be. So you have to have that passion. You have to have curiosity. You have to have conversations often. And, you know, eventually you may hit the right person who is excited about your excitement and wants to put you in position to take on endeavors that can be valuable to the organization. Uh, and that's really how it worked for me. I mean, like I just, I, I took that research project, turned it into like a seven year career and I continue to learn all of the time. Again, coming back to my mantra of how can I provide the most value to an organization? It's always thinking about like what sort of skill sets can I enhance for myself that's going to help organizations to, you know, achieve whatever it is that they want to achieve. And that's where, you know, currently I would say I'm really uh, stuck on the idea of being a facilitator. So I'm learning a lot about, you know, like how to run the most effective meetings, how to get people from big abstract ideas to decision points and feel good about them too, right? And also that they're actually savvy decisions. It's not that you're forcing people to make decisions about something and then it's like, oh no, we haven't done the financials on this. Like this could be bad. Like we decided to change the whole company color scheme from green to blue. Like it's not anything like silly like that. But I think if you want to be an entrepreneur, you have to be an excellent facilitator. You have to be able to take big abstract ideas and help uh, whoever your stakeholders are codify what needs to be done and give them a roadmap to go do it. Lots of great insights in our conversation today, Shane. I want to thank you so much for, for joining us um, on the Agile Brand Presenting Entrepreneurs. For any of our listeners out there that, uh, you know, might be inspired by some of the things that you said or might want to get in touch with you with additional questions, how can they reach you? Look me up on LinkedIn. I am Shane D. Hall, Organizational Anthropologist. Um, that's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me. But uh, yeah, I mean, anyone who wants to talk about anything that we've covered or adjacent, happy to do so. Um, you know, I, I love hearing from people who've had similar stories, similar, similar experiences. Uh, if you're interested in facilitation, that's a huge one for me right now. So um, we'd love to speak to anyone about any and all things. Great. Thanks again for listening to the Innovation Economy Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe on your podcast channel of choice and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can access more episodes at www.innovationeconomy.show or on your podcast platform of choice. The Innovation Economy Podcast was created by The Agile Brand. Be sure to check out the Agile Brand Guide series of books, The Agile Brand Podcast, and other resources for marketing, CX, and other enterprise leaders to manage change and transformation in their organizations. The Innovation Economy is proudly produced by Missing Link, a Latina-owned, strategy-driven, creatively-fueled production co-op. From ideation to creation, they craft human connections through intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Until next time, let's keep innovating.